Hi and welcome to the Women in ERP podcast. I'm Abigail Ullman and I'm Steph Poor and this is episode seven um, and we're joined today by Amanda Mackay, Director of Quality for AWE. Hi Amanda. Hello, thank you. Steph, have you had a nice holiday? <laughs> I have. I had a, a glorious week in Spain with the family. Um, oh, it was just nice because it was it was actually only four days off work because of the bank holiday, which meant I actually got a proper holiday um, yeah. because, I don't know, I was able to properly switch off from computers and emails because people weren't actually working at home either. Oh, um, well but yeah, it was amazing. And we were so lucky with the weather because um, it can be a bit hit and miss in April. Um, but yeah, no, fantastic. What about yourself? Did you have a good Easter? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I worked. <laughs> I worked of most of it, but we did get, we got one day away in Port Merion in Wales. And it's amazing. Have you ever been? It's such a no. weird place. It's where the prisoner was filmed, like the 1960 yeah. series. Have you been, Amanda? I have, yes, many, many years ago. Yeah. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's like being in Italy in the middle of Wales. <laughs> it's lost wow. some time, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. You must go. Yeah, so that's, that's really all we did and got out into the garden and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, chilled one. Who likes one, generally? Let's have a chat with Amanda then. Amanda, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> Amanda Mackay. Um, I'm, uh, I was going to say late middle-aged, but I may as well give it away. I'm 59 this year. Um, I'm Director of Quality for um, AWE, the Atomic Weapons Establishment, down in Alderbaston. Um, I live up in Glasgow, so I have a very long commute each week. Um, I've been working in the world of quality assurance, uh, sorry, quality and the wider assurance piece within nuclear and uh, offshore oil and gas for most of my working life. So. I'm also for uh, my sins, I'm a trans woman. I transitioned back in um, 2013 uh, whilst working in the um, offshore renewables industry. Really strange experience for me, something that um, had been part of my life for a long, long time and caused me a great deal of angst, anxiety, distress and all sorts of things. But um, probably the best decision I ever made was transition for me uh, brought me to where I am today uh, I spend a lot of my time not just as you know quality is a strange subject it, it's we're the nosiest profession on the planet <laughs> because if we don't know what's going on we can't provide assurance advice and, and other things so I found it to be a really enlightening um, career path I'm by degree I'm a, a mine engineer so I started my life in the coal industry in in the Midlands as a graduate of the National Coal Board um, unfortunately due to the miners strike and the demise of the UK coal industry my job went very quickly after I graduated unfortunately but I moved into um, at that time into tunneling uh, which is a very you know, aligned profession um, we don't really produce mine engineers in this country anymore. They're all tunneling and civil engineering. Um, yeah. So, but that set me up with a really good background because mine engineering—you're a jack of all trades. You know something about everything. My claim to fame is I've never built anything that's lasted more than an eight-hour shift. 
<laughs> we're the ultimate temporary works engineers. Yeah. You keep the roof up just long enough to get the coal out. Um, and I moved into construction and then into heavy lift. Um, so I worked as a heavy lift manager in the crane industry for a while and then uh, moved into um, project logistics and um, offshore oil and gas. So I spent a little time out in the North Sea running a big um, 18,000 ton crane barge. So very, very masculine sort of roles, I'd say. Oh, yes. I was about to say exactly the yeah. same. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was my, that was my defence mechanism. Yeah. Ah, okay. Um, so by being busy and by doing these ultra masculine things, so um, I've also throughout my life had a, a second career in volunteering. I joined the Territorial Army in my local mm -hmm. town. So I was still in the sixth form at the time. And, and I served with the TA right through the cold, that Cold War period right to uh, the mid 90s when they were downsizing the TA and I took an opportunity there to, to leave yeah. and I went into um, policing as a special constable. Oh my gosh, wow. <laughs> such a varied, varied career. Wow. It's yeah. fascinating. It's amazing. And yeah, I guess it's interesting to understand from your perspective, you know, as a trans woman, how did you make that path to transition and how did you sort of, how did it sit with your colleagues and, and your career choices, I guess? I think it, it, for me, it's something that I'd always known there was something different. But back in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, I really didn't, couldn't put a finger on it. I didn't know what to call it. And it wasn't until I saw a documentary on the BBC in the late 70s that uh, about the first trans woman to be, her journey was filmed as a part of a documentary, a lady called Julia. Uh, and, I, and I sat there watching this glued to it because thinking, that's me. You know, how do I, you know, I now know what to call it. I now know what it is. Um, and when I left university, you know, I'd started with a, the coal board. When, they, they made me redundant and I had to go and find another job. I ended up down in London uh, working uh, in the construction sector and I was able to go to the Charing Cross Gender Clinic. And those were the days when there was no such thing as a waiting list. And what I realised in going to speak to them and uh, they gave me the, the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, which is an understanding that you, you're almost you born in the wrong body. But at that time, they made life incredibly difficult. You really had to want it. Um, I have a very good friend who went through the system before me. Uh, she worked in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And like many of her female colleagues at work, she wore trousers to work. When she went to the gender clinic, if she did not turn up, in a dress. Hormones were withdrawn. They, she wow. was put back by six months. They expected you to be ultra feminine. And, you know, we, we all know that that isn't the basis of being a woman. No. <laughs> that's, that's crazy, isn't it? Because I, I was about to say, well, I guess in the 70s, that was really kind of cutting edge in terms of, you know, but, but then to hear that as well, it was like you're being punished at the yeah. same time for, you know, yeah. whilst they're trying to support you, which is bizarre. And, and for me, it said to me, mm, I'm not strong enough to go through that. And I, I really didn't see how I could do that, and particularly in the industries I was working in at the time. Mm. And there was no legislation protecting you. 
So there was no Gender Recognition Act, there was no Equality Act, you know, and you'd find the vast majority of uh, trans women uh, at that time would end up in the sex as sex workers. Yeah. That's just the way it was seen. Yeah. Uh, and that's what drove me, you know, I, I took on the, you know, the, the TA in a, uh, in my spare time, the, you know, the jobs in construction and heavy lifting and things. And, and I just made myself busy. I just, it blanked it out effectively, put it to the back of my mind. And I would find that when I, um, one of the consequences of that is that when a job started to not be interesting anymore, or I wasn't as busy as I should be, I would move because what would happen is that all of that anxiety and depression would come back yeah. because, you know, there was nothing to keep it at bay. Yeah. And the, I went through cycles like this through most of my working life until probably, it's when I moved up to Glasgow, um, I was working for the government for the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority in Cumbria. And um Part of my role, I managed a very large uh, change program as part of that program. Actually, engineered my job out of the organisation chart, but it was nice the right. <laughs> well, it was it was the right thing to do at yeah. the time. So, um, I, I'd already secured another role up in Glasgow with um, SSE workers on their major projects business. You know, we were spending between eight and nine billion pounds a year on creating assets a fantastic opportunity i moved up to glasgow got myself a flat there during the week and then suddenly realized all my support mechanisms you know my being busy on the night volunteering stuff model making when i wasn't doing that doing diy and all of these other things weren't there and i would come home from work because they were very strict about the you know the eight till five working regime they really didn't want you working excessive hours yeah. and doing other things yeah. And I found sitting in the flat on my own, all I had was my television and my mental health went downhill rapidly. Yeah, I, I, I reached out to a, a group in Glasgow at the time, a trans support group, and they put me in touch with the gender clinic. And I went for, you know, I got onto their list. Uh, it was a very short waiting list up here at that time. Um, and I was re-diagnosed with gender dysphoria and made the decision there and then that maybe now was the time to do it. Yeah. And it's a time to change. And it took me a couple of years to pluck up the courage to ask for work. I'd never seen any, you know, we had the right policies in place, but we didn't have any, there was no other trans people I could see. And, you know, talking to people in Glasgow, quite a lot of the, the people of my age group who transitioned had lost their jobs. You know, they, they one way or another, if an employer wants to make you redundant, they will. Mm, yeah. And we, I, had a, I enjoyed my work, I enjoyed my career. You know, at the very least, I need money to pay a mortgage. So, yeah. you know, I have to be really careful. But um, I plugged up the courage one day. Just I was sat in with HR. I was covering my boss's meetings while he was on holiday. She was covering her boss's meetings while her boss was on holiday. And I sat down and said, I need a chat with her. And the first thing she thought about was, you know, it's about money. She said, I'm not here to negotiate pay rises. I said, no, it's nothing to do with pay rises. <laughs> And I just came out with it and told her what I wanted Welcome. to do. And, yeah. And 
Oof. One, it was a fantastic load off my shoulders. Yeah. Because I'd sat with this for a couple of years thinking, how on earth do I do it? And she, she just sat there, gobsmacked. She said, I don't know what to say. One, thank you very much for telling me. But two, I don't know what to do. Yeah. I'm going to have to go away and find out. Yeah. Um, so I actually sent her, emailed her a whole load of documents I had that I'd been given over the last couple of years and by the, by the, um, the gender clinic in Glasgow, but also by um, colleagues and friends and things I got off the internet, all good practice guides um, on people transitioning at work. So she took it away and I, I didn't hear anything for a week and I was getting a bit worried that nothing was going to, you know, just blurted out my work, you know, sort of darkest secret and yeah. what yeah. was going to happen. And she organised a meeting with her boss who'd come back from, from leave and the HR director for the wider SSE group. So I went up to the Perth office where I regularly used to travel around Scotland and Ireland uh, with my job. And they sat me down and said, right, let's draw up the plan. You know, how do you want this to work? When do you want this to happen? What's the risk? You know, have you got a, a, your own idea of the risks that may be involved with this? And um, how do we tell people? And so together we actually formed a plan. And I was told a long time ago, you can't project manage this, but we did. And we put together a plan and within a couple of months, I'd come out at work and, you know, the, the rest of the world knew. Um, That's great. And do you feel that you were supported? I mean, did you find you experienced the inequalities now as a woman? Throughout the process, I, I had a lot of support from both my line manager and from HR and then from the directors in the business. And, and my first day back as Amanda. So I had about a month off. I had two weeks holiday and then I had two weeks off to sort everything, you know, getting my new driving license, passport, changing names on bank accounts, all of these sorts of things. Yeah. And first day back was really, I was absolutely terrified. Um, going into work on the train, you know, I've been out and about as Amanda for the last four years. So outside of work, um, in fact, I did a lot of charity work. I was trustee of an LGBT charity. I ran the National Trans Police Association in Scotland. So Police Scotland had never met Martin. They'd only ever met Amanda. Yeah. A lot of people had never... So I've been doing all of that, but actually getting on the train to go to work was terrifying. And I got into work. Everybody was really supportive. I had no issues at all with anybody. There were some who, who were, uh, said, well, what do we do about toilets? You know, daft things like that. It's, it's, not a, it's not a discussion I've ever had with anybody about which toilets I should use. That's ridiculous. But yeah. that debate has started to come back. The government and the Equalities mm. and Human Rights Commission have started that debate again, which actually, in legislation terms, uh, anybody can use any toilet. There's no, you know, it's only protocol that prevents us from in theory doing the wrong thing but what I did find and uh, we, we, we chatted about this before is that people do treat you differently but actually you know, um, you know we, we talk about male privilege and I don't think people can actually put a finger on exactly what male privilege is but you can once you've transitioned yeah we've seen it from both sides I guess 
Fascinating, yeah. Yeah. You know, I could see in meetings that I was treated slightly differently. Um, on several occasions, I said, can you go and get the, the coffees and the teas for the meeting? You know, and it's like, hang on, nobody asked me that before. Why yeah. And it's that, um, you know, sort of wow moment that says, did I actually treat other people, other female members of my team like this? And more importantly, it's not right. They sh we should take it in turns, you know, and it highlights all manner of different inequalities. Yeah. Um, and I found that you know, once you get over that, that sort of initial shock, I would then use it to my advantage. There are, there are things that <laughs> you can use to your advantage. Right? Absolutely. But, um, but the other one was I, I, for the meetings, I decided that the meetings weren't structured properly. So I drew up a new terms of reference for the meetings with a rotor for who would take the minutes and who would do the teas. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Tackle it head on. You're kind of uh, pioneering the way by the sounds of it yeah. um, at that point. Uh, and I rolled that out across all the other meetings. Every meeting I went to, if, if we didn't do that, I would uh, suggest to people, maybe you need to roll this out. This is a structured way of doing it. These are the people who can take the notes. There's the guidance on taking the minutes. It, it made quite a change across the structure. And people... Um, a lot of the guys would come to me and say, well, we didn't realise that we were doing anything wrong or doing anything different. And, and I highlight, I use that, that whole point about, you know, people treating me differently once I transitioned and presented differently uh, as to say, well, actually, you may not do it consciously, but actually you are doing it unconsciously. And did they, did they acknowledge that once you kind of called it out? Quite a few did, but not all of them. Yeah. Oh, OK. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? For any of our listeners today, um, could you offer some tips or advice to those that are maybe in a similar situation or, you know, women generally? You know, how can we feel empowered in, in a male-dominant workplace? That's a really interesting question because uh, um, I, I wanted some career progression and I really couldn't get that in the role I was in. One of the things that Transition did for me was release an inner confidence. I didn't have to worry about you know, Amanda being in the background and, and being a, a guilty secret anymore because it was out in the open. It's, you know, you Google me, it's all over the place, uh, who I was before and who I am now. And so it gave me that inner confidence and strength to say, well, actually, I want my next move. I want my next level of promotion. So I moved across to Balfabiti and very in the world, traditional construction company, but had a really great approach to um, EDI. And particularly uh, around gender. So you know, the construction sector is not good with gender. It's, it's um, the vast majority of organisations, you'll find no more than 20% of female employees. And of those female employees, they're generally in traditional, well, I'll say traditional, you shouldn't say really traditional, but in roles like HR, uh, administration, procurement, finance, not in technical or project management or leadership roles. I got involved with a programme that they ran called Empower. And Empower was about how you give that extra level of confidence and understanding to, to one, hold your own, and two, to be able to take on leadership roles within the organisation. And that's been a really successful programme. What a great initiative. That, that yeah. sounds amazing. 
it was a lot of it was about building confidence and understanding of um, some of the psychology of how men work, uh, which is interesting from my perspective because I'm sat there thinking, did I used to do that or do I still do it now or do I do a hybrid? Um, it really made me think, and I was able to give my uh, perspective on the, the change for me and what that had meant. I think one of the things that I've noticed, and I, I, you know, I've got a brand new team, well, I'll say brand new team, they're new to me, very large team. And what I've said to my female em, uh, employees is that some of this is about your own understanding of, I would say, traditional values. Yeah. Because I've noticed that with some of them, they, they won't speak up in the meetings. And, you know, your view is just as valid as anybody else's and don't ever ask for permission to speak or permission to do something because the guys won't do it. No. Just do it. Yeah. That's fantastic you say that. You call it out to them, like to help yeah. kind of encourage and, and give them confidence. That's amazing. And I said, you know, within my team, I have, I have two females in my lead team. I would like to even that up out of a team of eight um i've got some fantastically dedicated and uh, very well qualified young ladies who work for me and i said so you know, i've said to them what's your next step where do you want to go next and they would always hold off with well that opportunity is not open to me and i to say why you know always challenge back because yeah. You know, if people can't, you know, there might be a valid reason that you don't have a particular piece of training. Well, let's see how you get that training. Yeah, that's it. That might that's how you do it. it. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's about questioning why you can't go further, why um, you have a different journey to the male colleagues. Yeah, paving new paths, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like it's such a big impact you'll have on on those young ladies like careers because they'll from a young age start thinking yeah. differently like well if he can do that why can't I whereas before like you say they probably help themselves back <clears throat> so yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do work with um, some of the universities and um, particularly around STEM work mm-hmm. uh, which I really enjoy and for me it's about getting everybody else involved I mean I had a, a very interesting experience. Um, probably a couple of years after I transitioned and you know you can see behind me I, I make model kits I, you know, I've got thousands of them you know, like like most model makers I've got more models in here than I could ever build in a lifetime probably three lifetimes but I enjoy that I enjoy you know, working with my hands I enjoy crafts but I also um, I still enjoy DIY and engineering and what some people said to me were were male uh, orientated things. I said, well, one, that's my background, that's my history. Two, that's my interest. And three, why can't girls do it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what, what's to say that you know, um, a, a girl can't be an engineer, be a, a pilot, be whatever she wants to be. It, she had the same aspiration as anybody else. And you know, I had people in the, my own community, the trans community, criticising me because I had male-orientated things 
in my in in my life and i said i'll happily wreck my nails to get inside the engine compartment of a tank and work on its engine you know? <laughs> but that's crazy because you, you literally can't win just you just the sounds of it just being authentic and living yes as yourself and yeah. you know like you say even you, the trans uh, you, your trans friends are saying oh, excuse me, they're not friends if they're criticizing <laughs> you but it's kind of um yeah it's it's crazy that you're getting it from both sides in some ways yes and i think it's one of the things i learned very early on is that you're just going to be yourself yeah yeah um, okay. and, you know, in this life there will be people who support you and there'll be people who don't and, and that's just that's just people and society yeah. Um, so I, I moved away from it. I used to do a lot of work with the trans community, a lot of support work. And I don't do as much now as I used to for the simple reason that I found it, I, you could get drawn into arguments on the most stupid of things, mm-hmm. which actually common sense tells you, you know, if A wants to do that, that's fine for them. But if B doesn't, then that's fine for them. Yeah. It, there's no right or wrong as long as you're not harming somebody else and you're not breaking the law it, it's it's what's right for that individual yeah absolutely the government at the moment are really discriminating against trans people yes. um, with regards to their aversion therapy stance what mm-hmm. are your thoughts on that at the moment what, what message would I, you like to get out to people I would say that you know I I don't quite understand the stance of this this government. It's it's gone. It's very very anti-trans, um, and that's spread into the other groups that they run. So you know you've seen in the press that the great LGBT conference they were planning to run has now all collapsed because of this, um, and the Equality and Human Rights Commission head has been brought into the Women and Equalities commission to explain her actions so why she raising anti-trans uh things and rights in wasting time effectively when there are many other things that they should be doing yeah for me it's it's a group of people trying to reverse something that's been going really well for years yeah we, we, we were held up a, yeah. a great supporter as a country of lgbt plus rights particularly trans and now it's gone backwards um I think that's just a sign of the times. That's the the. It's hard, hard what's going on. But yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, some, something's happening. There are a lot of these conspiracy theories, but until somebody brings up the absolute proof around it, um, I think it's just it's just the way that this particular government are and their views. I mean, Liz Truss, as the uh, sort of equalities minister, really has no time for the trans community and has used it as an excuse to drive a wedge in the LGBT community, actually. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, it, it's not on. Live and let live. No, no. I, I think, you know, once you pick on one community, they'll start and pick on another one. So, mm-hmm. so there we are. Um, so let's just have a little chat then um, about ERP. So you're an ERP user. Um, And one of the things we spoke about previously is about the importance of planning before implementation. Could you give us a bit of an overview of of Yes. Um, Over the years, I've been involved with many IT projects. Um, When I worked for um, Brambles, uh, which was back in the 90s, 
because I had a home computer, it was considered I would be the IT manager as well. UHS <laughs> had marine operation. Um, um, I learned an awful lot about implementing systems. And IT moves so quickly, you know, changes in development and in technology and the way that we do things changes all the time. And I've noticed that in large IT projects, particularly government, that people are not good at planning out and understanding requirements. And it, I'm involved with something in my own organization now. And thankfully at the early stages, it's about making sure we understand exactly what we wanna do with an ERP product, why we want it, what it's gonna do for us and what those benefits are and defining all of this at the very beginning because I've worked on projects um, with a, in a previous role when I worked for government, I was a, an OGC high-risk reviewer and reviewing government IT projects as an independent. And whilst I'm not an IT expert, what I would look for is how they'd managed this and how they'd managed the expectations of the organization. And yeah. one was ID cards, which was killed because... <laughs> they created something that no IT system in the world could actually do. Please, yeah. Yeah. Um, same was the NHS National um, Computer System, which again, across the United Kingdom was killed, but actually because Scotland had actually thought about what they wanted to do with this and been very, very good at how they were going to specify the requirements and what the end user would actually get from this. Um, in Scotland, we have a national IT, NHS IT system. So I can go to any hospital or medical facility in Scotland and they can access all my records. Can't do that in England. No, it's half of it's still paper records in England. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. That's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So for me, the, that actual planning and thought of what you want an ERP system to do is the key. Mm -hmm. and sticking to it because the issues I've seen over the years have been where people would take a system and say great we want it to do that and then somebody reads a magazine and says oh we can add this mm -hmm. uh, these wheels whistles and bells to it and it can do something else and I don't know whether you've ever programmed in, B in basic yes but so, you know, adding subroutines because you wanted to do something and you'd add another subroutine and another subroutine. It just gets mental. <laughs> keel over because it was running a thousand subroutines to achieve its end. Yeah. Um, many systems I've seen, people would do that. They would add something on and add something and add something without understanding the consequences of it and, and not going back to the baseline and saying, actually, we need to change the spec. Because the spec says, if I want to do all of this, I need to add it on. It's what success looks like at the end and then kind of working backwards. And yeah, yeah completely and, agree. And sometimes you have to say to people, you can't have that because adding that may look like a small thing, but actually is going to completely change the end product. Many times our guys go into a system and they see, you know, lots of people have been in there. There's lots of different bespoke bits of development, all sort of leading to the same endpoint. Um, and you, you're then going in and having to clean all that mess up. Yes. It's rather just yeah. not have the mess to start with. No, no. That's I mean, where that continuous kind of 
value realization is so important otherwise you end up with lots of plasters all over the place yeah. <laughs> just need to amputate certain sections at that point <laughs> start again so clearly defining processes before introducing yes. things like automation yeah and, and i think if you can't envisage what the end looks like then you can't develop a system yeah um it's something that I, i've always um admired those people who put together a system from scratch and they, they've come up with that vision and um you know i bought a number of off-the-shelf systems in the past and someone said to how on earth did you come up with that because it does everything they want it to do out the box yeah and it, you know, they would say to you that it's born from experience of what other people wanted more importantly being able to make your product future-proofed to cater for everything that anybody's going to throw at it yeah um because there's nothing worse than you've developed something and someone comes along and says well i want it to do this now um not understanding the consequences of it that's it and when people transition from their jobs yeah. as well and then people yeah. come in and go and you know everyone's got different ideas of what they want so there's yeah you know it's having that succinct thing that, that will last beyond beyond your role into Definitely. future future yeah. positions uh, i think it's something that I know, I mean, you know, the Prince 2 methodology was brought in by government because they needed to give the IT people a structured project management approach. Um, what's always interesting is that people think Prince 2 is project management. It, it is, but it's really focused around IT, yeah, not around general project management. And you find a lot of people trying to make it work elsewhere and it doesn't work so well. You know, uh, yeah, APM and other things are probably better suited to construction, not prints too. But in terms of data, I think we spoke about building a data lake. Yes. Just tell us about that theory. So, um, one of the things I came across many years ago I mean, quality is a profession that uses an awful lot of data. You know, uh, our, our the first quality principle is decisions based on facts. So we use data and particularly in the manufacturing sector, you will gather absolutely tons and tons of data telling you how your product is doing, how your production lines working, um, where your defects are, where your defects are likely to be and using that data to predict as well as to actually, so rather than just having lagging indicators telling us we made a thousand defective products last week yeah. telling us we are likely to make uh defective products in this particular time frame this area this particular type of product um and i worked early on on and particularly in construction on how we collected data we we produced lots and lots of records in the construction sector and what we were doing is all paper-based so when somebody goes and inspects something or um goes and does a piece of work they'll complete a form or complete something in paper yeah and all that data ends up and it can't be analyzed easily so we found a way of actually digitizing all of this by digitizing it we ended up with the data and we decided that that data then needed to be available to a much wider audience and our it team came up with a solution and putting it into a vast data lake they created this server which would take all of the data in um and then we looked at how do we actually usefully use that i suppose when i got into using power bi yes um prior to that we used a thing called business objects yeah so business intelligence tools 
brilliant. Yeah, yeah we work yeah. with them sort of on a daily basis. And we found that we were getting such rich intelligence out of this, uh, just for the, the small area that we applied it in, that we extended it to covering much larger areas. So my last uh, job in construction was on HS2, and we rolled out a um, digitization program on everything that we were doing. So the whole railway uh, as such, at the end of our construction period, there would be a vast pool of data um, that could be interrogated. And we were using this on a day-to-day -day basis to predict problem issues and to, to guide um, construction methodology because we would see a problem within it the way we were doing something yeah. and immediately be very quickly able to change it whereas previously it could have taken weeks to have actually found an issue um, so we, we were making tunneling segments for the tunnels within the first thousand we'd found a, a problem yeah if we continued using the paper-based records it might not have been till halfway through production that's it so bi does give you that agile sort of quick yeah. to respond um result doesn't it it does great great does. things yeah i use them a lot in marketing actually <laughs> within quality we've launched what we call quality 4.0 which is that digitization of quality and mm -hmm. how we use digital tools and methodology to improve quality across any enterprise so uh, it, as, as chair of the CQI at the moment, it's one of the projects I've sponsored uh, because I see the value of it and the benefits. Yeah. Uh, in fact, our, our conference in June, um, it's a key part of the, the conference is quality 4.0 because it's the thing that everybody across quality sector is now asking for. Yeah. Wanting to know how we can take that next step. Future proof. Right. We'll let you go now, Amanda. Thank you so much. No problem. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. I think we've been we've been educated. We have got some tips for ourselves as well from you. Yep. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> really inspirational. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, enjoyed chatting to you. Yeah. Thank keep you. on the good fight. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. -bye.